Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to uh, episode 11, uh, Al-Qaeda and Associated Movements, or the Global War on Terror, as we sometimes like to call it, uh, Profiles and Strategy, the S&P Department's uh, podcast. I'm Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, your host. Uh, joining me today, fellow professors from the Strategy and Policy Department, we have Dr. Mark Genest, uh, Dr. Heidi Lane, and Dr. Uh, Barak Katakan. Welcome, everyone. Thank all you. subject matter experts on on various uh, aspects of the Middle East. Um, so looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, so I guess we'll start the the conversation with talking about the rise of these, not just Al Qaeda, but these these jihadi groups around around the Middle East. And, um, you know, it, was there any way we could have foreseen this, prevented it? Was there any period of time when more engagement or less engagement might have had a might have had a more preventative way of of, of kind of not uh, putting us in the situation we are now? Uh, and Mark, we'll go ahead and start the conversation with you. <clears throat> well, that's an interesting question, uh, and I love these kinds of questions because there's no right or wrong answer. Um, so, I, I would I would say that. One of the things that's the result of globalization was the recognition that the old adage that Huntington came up with, uh, they want to modernize but not westernize. And, and I think this was a, uh, a regional response to the domination, not just of American military and political power, but American cultural power. Uh, and these were much more traditional societies who rejected the uh, the, the liberalism of the West and, you know, the, the creation of or women's rights, of gay rights, and a whole series of things that we see from 1979 onward, we see a real reaction among more traditional societies that, look, we want your technology, we want your, your wealth, what we don't want is your society. And I think the outgrowth of that partially was the jihadist movement. But there was also another factor, and that is the innate failure of, of governments in that region of the world, in the Arab world, to provide for their people, both politically, economically, and culturally. So there was a response, a reaction to the long-term corruption and authoritarianism of Western-backed states in the um, Arab world that made us more of a target for jihad uh, than would otherwise be. And that's certainly how bin Laden saw it. He saw it as the far enemy was the key, and that if the United States uh, was forced out of that region, all of these, what he called apostate states, uh, would crumble without American support. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Heidi, we'll go to you for a response. Yeah, thanks. Um, it is a good question. And I think, was there anything we could have done, meaning the US? Uh, the answer to that would be probably. Uh, no, except to be perhaps more sensitive to what the actual issues were maybe earlier on. And when I say actual issues, Mark already mentioned most of them, and that is a, a degree of uh, discontent, a very large degree of discontent with state, uh, the way that states had treated some of the population or the, or I would say general sentiments among citizens of the region. Uh, or non-citizens in some cases. And you know, when you talk about when this began, um, this is really something that if you if you are working in the Middle East field, you can trace it back to the 1940s, you can trace it back even earlier, but typically most of the books that debate uh, jihadism or Islamist movements or political Islam, traced to about the 1960s and typically raise 
what uh, Barack and his and his or Dr. Katakan and his lectures uh, talks about, which is the rise of Said Qutb and the idea that there's a debate within Sunni Islam in particular. I mean, this is we're really talking about Sunni Islam here. Uh, a divide in the way that people view the utility of religion as a political tool. So I think, you know, if you were to say what could prevent the United States, excuse me, what could have prevented the rise of these groups, it would have been certainly uh, a more, a different kind of treatment in their own states. Uh, and then perhaps a little bit of more cognizance on the part of uh, the United States and other countries that these are not these are not small minority uh, concerns. These are much more broadly held across the population, even if most of the groups that are in this category would not uh, ever wouldn't seek out violence. They're they are contentious and they're engaging in contentious politics. They're not necessarily violent. What we notice is the violent part. Interesting. Uh, Barack, thoughts on this one? So I would like to take the September 11 attacks as a benchmark and like to speak what might have been done in a hypothetical ideal world before that and what could have been done differently after September 11 attacks. I personally think that beyond intelligence community, beyond intelligence efforts, not much could have been done to prevent September 11 attacks. But that being said, and that is something I try to highlight in my lectures over the region, I think United States before 2001, leadership, maybe even the scholarly community, but mostly policymakers and what have you, they could have done a better job when it comes to understanding the impact of increasing United States presence in the Middle East, broadly defined. Because if you look at the history of the Middle East, especially in the last hundred years, we see massive intervention from, at the time, Western or, or European imperialist colonial countries, like mostly British and the French, come into Middle East after World War I, and they slice and dice territories. They try to rule it directly or indirectly. That causes massive anti-European or anti-British, anti-French, anti-colonial sentiments in the region that arguably have not gone away even after a century later. And I think starting from late 70s onwards, as the United States was increasing its presence in the region, the United States policymakers should have gone further to come face the fact that there's this massive, widely shared anti-imperialism, anti-European, anti-British, anti-French sentiments in the region. And as Europe, as the United States is replacing these powers in the region, the common perception in the region, at least one common perception in the region became, oh, this is just old Western powers, Western imperial powers. They, they no longer speak English with an accent or with a British accent, or they don't speak French anymore. They speak English with an American accent. So I think United States policymakers, perhaps in an ideal world, but we say this 2020 hindsight, maybe they could have gone further to acknowledge this fact and maybe find ways to counter this narrative when, it, when there was still time to do it. Now, as I mentioned, September 11 attacks, I don't think beyond intelligence, more intelligence, paying closer attention to intelligence, there was not much that could be done to prevent it if we are just now in 2001. But after 2001, and I'm, I'm going to sort of stop there, don't, don't, don't want to make too much uh, effort to, to you know take the time. After 2001, the ball is now in the United States court. So every single year we can find a turning point and said, oh, maybe United States should have done this differently. Should they have done this differently? We can say the same thing in 2002. Maybe United States you know, could have distanced the Iraqi case from the broader global war on terror. 2003, United States goes into Iraq. Maybe they could have uh, not got rid of Ba'ath Party without thinking about a B plan. 2004, 2005, 2006, and we can just play this game after 2001 for every single year, every single decision making. And again, I think these are details, turning points, but my overall answer is there could have been a lot of different decisions. But, it, but again, we're speaking with 2020 hindsight here. Thank you. Yeah, that's interesting. So, it, you know, we talk a lot about um, um, 
peripheral campaigns and peripheral theaters and when to open one up and when to close one. Um, for for this one, as you mentioned, brought you so so September 11th happens, and it's this watershed moment, and you know now the whole nation is behind the the fact that we have to go combat the uh, the terrorists or the jihadis, whatever. We decide to open a theater in Afghanistan ostensibly to go get uh, Osama bin Laden, and that doesn't happen. But then we still decide to stay and nation build and you know make this our the main theater of the of the you know global war on terror mark what's your why do you think that happens that way you're on mute mark let me comment a little bit about what barack said i actually disagree a little bit with barack's comment that there's not much we could have done to prevent 9 11. there was certainly a lot we could have done uh one the clinton administration had several opportunities to kill or capture uh, bin Laden, and for varying reasons, uh, they decided that it wasn't worth the risk, uh, particularly because of the delicate nature of Middle East talks during that period of time. Um, also, Richard Clark, uh, in the administration, the Bush administration, was warning them daily that there was something brewing. And in the earlier World Trade bombing, uh, there were lots of indications about what uh, Al Qaeda and the associated movements would think of doing. And one of the key ones uh, was uh, using airplanes as weapons. So, you know, as the 9-11 Commission would later say, uh, it was a lack of imagination on our part. Uh, and it was a lack of coordination among intelligence um, agencies uh, to share their information in a timely fashion. So I think actually, frankly, the United States has a tendency to be surprised. I mean, look at Pearl Harbor, uh, we tend to, this, the hubris of the American uh, government says, look, you know, we're protected by wide oceans uh, and by a great, we're a great power, so no one's going to dare to attack us. Instead of looking at it going, the weak are going to use whatever instruments they can uh, to attack the powerful, and that's generally going to be used, you know, targeting civilian non-combatants. Uh, so I think there's plenty of we could have done to prevent it. Uh, now, with regard to what was your last question? I'm sorry, I got carried away with that. We decide to make Afghanistan our main theater of operations and we stay there. Well, that was a big difference. The initial strategy of the Bush administration is retribution. You go there, you find and you uh, eliminate uh, al-Qaeda leadership, you know, Zawahiri and bin Laden uh, predominantly. Uh, then what happens is we do very well. The regime is toppled. The Taliban is toppled very quickly. But it was like a pirate victory because, again, our pride and arrogance come through and say, OK, now this was even easier than we thought. Uh, even though we didn't capture the al-Qaeda leaders, uh, we can now reform Afghanistan uh, and make that into a country that's democratic and stable. And that was the height of hubris. I mean, this is a, a, a really agrarian, traditional society, the long history of uh, xenophobia toward outsiders, uh, and yet we think we can remake them in our image. And it was a gross, gross miscalculation on the part of the Bush administration. Yeah. Uh, so uh, any, any thoughts on this one, Heidi? Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts on this. And, you know, just to... Uh, pull the thread a little bit on uh, the point about preventing 9-11, you know, the there was no shortage of information and understanding about Islamist ideology. However, just like today, you, you need to rely on uh, your intelligence, not just intelligence in your own country, because Mark's talking about the inter- you know, the interrelationships between our own intelligence organizations, which, of course, I think get, all get pulled together after 9-11. But our intelligence sources in the region come from our allies or our perceived allies. And in, in none of those cases did any of those allies indicate uh, or I think know themselves how, uh, how lethal the possibility was on the part of certainly Al-Qaeda. What they did know, however, was that the way that they dealt with them was traditionally, uh, which is why bin Laden is in Afghanistan anyway, is to export them, is to send them outside the border 
in order to deal with a problem that is predominantly internal. Um, and they used, they, they did that uh, over and over. And, and that was something that we knew about. Uh, in fact, we, we benefited, I think, to a certain extent during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan from utilizing Mujahideen in Afghanistan because they were against, of course, the Soviets. So what we, we did understand that. We did not understand that there would be a one-off, uh, essentially accidental win on the part, you know, a rather unusual operational success on the part of bin Laden. Uh, I don't think that could have been duplicated. I think there's a lot of evidence now that that was a lucky shot, but a lucky shot that essentially completely changed your kids' lives, my kids' lives, our adult lives, uh, and pretty much shaped almost everything about our political strategy in the last 20 years. To, to Mark's point about, or I guess to, the, to your question about um, essentially a change of objectives in Afghanistan from getting bin Laden and reducing Al-Qaeda to a non-threat and then state building, I don't think that's an accident. That was not something that someone decided. That was foreign policy. That was the foreign policy of the time. The foreign policy of the time was democracy promotion to some extent usually through NGOs, State Department, uh, promotion of civil society. And it was pervasive across the whole Middle East, especially after 1990, 1991, uh, when it became mainly the way that we engaged in the region. And, you know, there's ample evidence of that. There are millions and millions of dollars of democracy promotion money going into that uh, into that effort. So it did not, it was not, I think, a surprise to transpose that over to Afghanistan. But to the point that Mark made, it was, um, it was something that was an objective that did not have really an operational reality. Because unlike Iraq, and I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, at least if you're a political scientist and if you understand, uh, if you believe you understand how democracy takes root, it takes root, it has, there has to be a middle class, there have to be people who are political entrepreneurs, there has to be some sense of modernization. And I don't think in most of the uh, people who would have looked at that at that time would have said that Afghanistan was at that point now, but it was foreign policy and it was easy, I think, to transpose an initial political objective into a broader, less clear one. Mm, interesting point. Barack, any thoughts on this one? So, you know, just very briefly reaching out to Mark's comments about the previous question about, or the point about could September loan have been prevented? I think I, in fact, disagree with Mark. I believe he, dis he agrees with, I agree with Mark and I believe he agrees with me because my point was about mostly the, Whatever could have been done must have been the intelligence community. But beyond that, I think it's difficult to see or foresee what would have happened. Because if for nothing else, now we have internalized September 11. But when the attack actually took place, it was really an unimaginable, unprecedented event. I remember the day I got a call and the, the call, the message says, turn on the phone, turn on the TV. I turn on the TV. I watch the second tower go down live. At that point in time, it's difficult to grasp what's happening. It could be an alien invasion, for all I know, at that very point in time. So I think it was a very unimaginable action to take. And I think intelligence community could have or maybe could not have done something about it. That's where I would just put the you know, emphasis. But beyond that, when it comes to the question of why nation building Afghanistan, I totally agree with anything and everything that Mark and Heidi said. One additional comment that I can offer is at the time, arguably the victory defeated the United States thinking about you know, what can be done with Afghanistan. And here's what I mean, leading up to 2001 or leading up to operation in Afghanistan right after September 11, there was massive support across the globe, uh, broadly speaking for United States to do something about the attack. And I think even a lot of folks across the world who oppose the idea of nation building in Afghanistan or invasion of Iraq 
supported the United States doing something about Afghanistan. And at the time, leading leading up to the actual operations, there were a lot of doomsayers. Oh, you know, if you go to Afghanistan as an outside powers, you will fail there because the British failed there, the Soviets failed there, and if the United States goes to Afghanistan which they label as a quagmire, United States will fail there too. But if you look at the first couple of years, in fact, opening stages, and even after the opening stages, few, you know, first few years of Afghanistan, United States president of Afghanistan, things weren't looking that bad. So arguably, United States leadership you know, got very optimistic about what could be done in Afghanistan. And there were some previous misleading examples. Oh, nation building. It's easy because we have done that in... Japan, or we have done that in Germany after World War II, but of course the context was incredibly different. So I think the decision for nation building Afghanistan followed from the fact that United States bringing down Taliban in 2001 and onwards was an easy operation to take. But once the initial success created immense op in optimism, then the policy objectives might have been expanded or as high dimension the policy object the general policy objective of democracy promotion might have been empowered and you know fast forward almost 20 more than 20 years and here we are but i think the initial decision or initial impetus to go for nation building follow from rather uh, immense optimism that follow which in fact follow from the first year or two of afghanistan thank you so, uh, so both of you have kind of started the, the lead into the, um, you know, the next major campaign within this case study, uh, the case being the multi-headed hydra that it is, is we decide to open up a peripheral theater in Iraq, or, or one could even maybe argue we, we shifted the main theater of operations to Iraq. And if, you know, as a result of September 11th, we start this global war on terror, to go dismantle these terrorist networks and we go into Afghanistan and we have limited success with doing that maybe. But then in 2003, you know, two years after September 11th, now we say, oh, we need to post Saddam because that's somehow going to make our strategic position better vis-a-vis uh, -vis the, these global terrorist networks. Um, and so Heidi, I want to start uh, uh, with you on, on, on this one. Why? Why go to Iraq? Why the peripheral theater? Uh, thanks. Yeah, this is, um, I've been thinking about this because, you know, as you know, I'm coming up to a lecture on Iraq and the war on terror. And um, I think the key question that we have to ask at this point, and maybe even before 2003, is, is the war on terror more about states or is it more about non-state actors? In other words, where are the main objectives? Because in my view, this is shifting constantly from about that point on. Because, you know, on the one hand, there's this sort of larger objective of bringing back some sort of um, some sort of governance to Afghanistan through the uh, reintroduction of political elites that we find all over the world and Afghans who come back to preside over some sort of national government. And uh, on the other hand, there is this focus on non-state actors. And I think it's really difficult to know which a great, a superpower like the United States really cares more about. And I would, I would hazard to say that it is actually more about states rather than non-state actors, because at the end of the day, non-state actors are a nuisance uh, and that's how they're treated up until September 11th. It is after September 11th that they begin to be treated as something more malign and, uh, and dangerous, but it doesn't change the fact that the international system is built on the integrity of states and how they behave. So Afghanistan is a problem because it is not well governed and because September 11th launches from Afghanistan and because we decide at that point that the Taliban are certainly not redeemable. Um, although I would say that just before September 11th, there is a roving ambassador to the Taliban that is visiting the United States and making a tour around the United States. So an official tour, uh, meaning hosted by the US government. So there, 
just before 9-11, there's still some idea that maybe there's some segment of the Taliban that can be an interlocutor for us to reduce the amount of violence uh, and change the uh, change change what's happening there. That's not true after September 11. So with regard to Iraq, I think, you know, and it's unfortunate to say this, but there there's no way that uh, the the evidence doesn't point in this direction. There's a massive disagreement among policymakers and uh, and in our administration at that point about what utility Iraq has. And it leads people to do things that are essentially, um, you know, not uh, honest brokers in this in this process, meaning manipulation of intelligence, manipulation of people who uh, might think, for example, that there are very lethal chemical and nuclear weapons in Iraq, uh, the manipulation of a narrative, not 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 um, not a manipulation that is, you know, controlled that someone is trying to convince you that Iraq is are the bad guys, but essentially disagreement among the political elites about what the biggest problem is. Is it the fact that maybe Iraq could have Al-Qaeda, could host Al-Qaeda types? Is it a is it the worst problem that we're looking at the proliferation issue again? Uh, is it the problem that Iraq really never complied and never was uh, subdued after 1991? and is still oppressing its, its populace. None of those questions were resolved at the point that, the, that I think there was consensus to invade Iraq. Mm. And because of that, there was also no one objective. And I think because of that, it led to a lot of, a lot of Americans and, and frankly coalition partners entering into uh, what we would call, I think a quagmire for a good many years. You, you, a quick follow-up on this, Heidi. You mentioned how it had become policy to um, you know, promote states uh, and favorable states uh, to the United States and, and that are more uh, politically oriented towards us and that kind of thing. Um, and we do that in Afghanistan and we ostensibly do that in, in, in Iraq, but Yet the interesting juxtaposition is that we go to war or we went to a limited war in 1991 to reestablish the emir of Kuwait, who is in no way democratic. <laughs> is, is that, you know, like, do you think it's just because that's a, a real politic answer of, a, of a, a, an ally that's that's with us, even though his system of government is different or? Um, I think that the strategy in war case demonstrates over and over again that if an autocrat or a non-democratic government is actually working in your favor in the international system and, and, you, and you have a reasonable relationship that allows you to pursue your state interests, that it does, it's immaterial uh, or it's less important. And, you know, that's not, a, that's not an ethical or moral position that I would take, but it is it's one that has data behind it. Yeah. I mean, it is it is the case that we have, in the last few years, even since ISIS, we and and certainly after the Arab Spring, we have not uh, we have not stopped having relations with governments uh, in the Middle East that happen to be autocratic moving, uh, autocratic leaning. Mm -hmm. In fact, we've rather increased our connection in many cases. Hmm. And that is just part of realist politics if you are in that camp. Um, so when you see that, then you, you know, if you're an idealist, it's not, uh, it's, it's not compatible with what you think should happen, but that is in fact the case, I think, in the, in the Iraqi case. In the case of Saddam Hussein and the Iraq and the Ba'ath regime, they complied on no front they did not play in the international system in any way that would allow the United States to save base or frankly anywhere else. And so when the United States is faced with um, looking at the feasibility of changing that paradigm in Iraq, I think there were at least a good number of people who felt that that was sufficient reason to remove Saddam Hussein and with the hope that there would be 
not with the hope, with, with actually the firm belief that there would be a better government in the background. Iraqis who were uh, in the diaspora, Iraq, Iraqis in Iraq, who our intelligence and policymakers felt would take up the reins of a more representative and democratic system. And, and that was, that was inaccurate. Hmm. Okay, Barack, we'll go to you next on this one. So, you know, I like to answer the question in two ways. The first part would have involved the place of, or the role or place of war in Iraq or just invasion of Iraq 2003 in the context of global war on terror. The second one about why the decision itself was made or how it became possible. I think the first point is, and it should be obvious by now, but sometimes we speak in, in terms of, uh, we speak as if Iraqi theater was open primarily because of the global war on terror. But if you look at the state of policy, it was not the case. So it was all about, it was, it was not all about, but mostly about weapons of mass destruction and Saddam's unwillingness to comply with any measures that would put a hold on that. And arguably, it's because of the United States' decision to intervene in Iraq that Iraq became part of global war on terror. Now, to be, to be precise, especially Colin Powell referred to certain individual, Ibn Musab al-Zarqawi, who eventually rose up to become the head of al-Qaeda in Iraq, then the founding father, at least from a theoretical perspective, of ISIS. Now, lots of references were made to him to probably prop up the idea that maybe Iraq should be a part of global war on terror. But at the time, uh, Ibn Musab al-Zarqabi was a very minor player in the jihadi universe. This was one guy who would go to Afghanistan to meet Osama bin Laden, and Osama bin Laden would not even bother to meet him. So, And, and at the time when the United States decided to invade Iraq, Zarqavi was not part of, was not a formal part of Al-Qaeda. So what I'm trying to say is Iraq becomes part of global war on terror, not from the get-go. It probably becomes, arguably it becomes part of the global war on terror after the United States decides to intervene in Iraq. Now, the second point is how on earth did we end up with a decision like this? Because we can say that probably it was not the best decision to take, or at least even if maybe, even if it's a good decision, it was not executed very well. So I think it was a perfect storm of three tendencies that eventually pushed decision makers to the decision. The first one is, again, optimism, because if you look at the historical context from 70s onwards, United States decision makers, maybe even the military are still suffering from what we can call Vietnam syndrome. So maybe United States should not go out to you know, other places in the world and try to do, change the world to try to make it better if only from its perspective. But then we have 1990, 1991, which is arguably a successful military campaign. And then we have in 1999, uh, Serbia, Kosovo, where United States vis-a-vis -vis NATO is able to get its policy, uh, it, it, it accomplish its policy objectives without not much of an effort, not much of a cost, with only mostly air power. Then we have 2001 Afghanistan, and I'd like to highlight this again, by 2001, 2002, 2003, Afghanistan for many looks like a success story. Even in our community, in International Nations Scholarship, there were lots of articles in major leading academic journals that were trying to explain the miracle of Afghanistan. So by 2003, we're talking about a massive, well-established optimism. So there's optimism. The second part is the angle that Heidi already mentioned, democracy promotion. Now, 1990s, early 2000s are, is a certain age where United States decision makers, at least some of them, also intellectuals, maybe some of them are more or less in a more, I wouldn't say obsessed, but in favor of this idea of democracy promotion. United States can and maybe should go out to these problematic regions in the world, you know, help with the democratic transition. And, and when those geographies, when those countries are democratic, all will be rosy. I think that was the other, the second leg of this perfect storm. And the third one was an energized uh, public. So after 2001, September 11 attacks, United States public opinion was probably more accepted, accepting to the idea of United States taking some measures to change the world so that the United States 
and United States citizens end up safer. So I think that was a certain point in history in 2003 that allowed such a decision to be made. I would say those conditions would not exist in 1999, would not exist in 2007 maybe, but they did exist in 2003. Interesting, thank you. Uh, Mark, we'll, we'll go to you for a response. You're on, uh, on mute. Uh, the, the comments by both Heidi and Barack were really superb. Um, let me just add a little bit to it. Uh, the democratization uh, uh, program is really important, like Heidi and Barack both said. But I'm going to take a little more cynical view on this. Um, and that is that the administration in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 um, listens to a brief that was prepared for them by a think tank. Um, and the presentation essentially was, there's a profound problem in the Middle East, and it's a, a lack of faith and trust in the governments, that if essentially Arab regimes have failed their people, and that the only long-term solution to the problem of jihadism is exactly what Heidi and Barack were talking about, the gradual democratization and what the um, Rand Corporation called the empowering of the Arab people, because too, uh, for too long they've seen the Americans in the West um, as a focus of imperialism and disempowerment, that the administration has this unique opportunity uh, with 9-11 to actually create a new zeitgeist for, the, for that region of the world um, that is a show of constructive change. Um, and that's why in, in, in this uh, presentation, literally uh, in the weeks, only a few weeks after 9-11, where they say, look, let's look at the Middle East. Iraq is one of the pillars of the Middle East for a democratic domino effect in which Iraq, which is a secular society, um, uh, uh, in the regional context, it's very well educated. It's got a diverse economy. This is almost the perfect place to implant a democratic regime. And then from there, the success of Iraq will turn the rest into a democratic domino um, effect. And when the Arab Spring comes up several years later, the Bush administration, Bush is out of office by then, is saying, look, this is what we meant to do. Um, and so what happens here is there's actually pre-planning about how to resolve this jihadi crisis globally. Um, and that is at the outset. So Iraq was always the low-hanging fruit for the administration because it had the threat of nuclear weapons or potential threat of nuclear weapons and chemical weapons. And it was this beautiful target um, for a major effort to change the entire political culture of the Middle East. And it was incredibly ambitious, incredibly idealistic, and incredibly unrealistic. Uh, and that was the great flaw of going into Iraq. So that kind of is an interesting segue to the point of, you know, we, we if we look at this as, as, as one uh, campaign with many fronts or something like that, we go into Iraq, we depose Saddam, it, it starts, a, as, as Barack mentioned, this yes, gives rise to this jihadi movement. Um, Al-Qaeda establishes a franchise in, in Iraq. They become the forerunners of ISIS. Um, we do a surge, we get things to an acceptable level uh, of violence in Iraq, and then we decide to leave, leave in, in 2009, just as the Taliban is on its resurgence in Afghanistan. And we leave, we're trying to then do a surge in Afghanistan, and oh, by the way, now things start falling apart in, in, in Iraq. Um, so does, does, this, does having these two separate campaigns going on make, make everything worse? Would it have better to just completely close one or never start one and, and just focus on uh on the other and you know and also on this in this question you know which one is the peripheral theater here which one is the main theater do we do we even know that uh, the answer to that mark i want to i want to start this one with you well we made iraq into the main theater when it was always a peripheral theater 
Um, and it go, go, go back to the optimism that Barack was talking about in 03 in Afghanistan. Um, and it was an optimism based not on reality. There were all kinds of intel reports coming out that Al-Qaeda was beginning to, uh, and the Taliban specifically, were beginning to reconstitute in the Fatah region. We just simply thought that they wouldn't be able to do so in, a, in an effective fashion. But while we were focusing on the new theater of operation, Iraq, uh, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, but particularly the Taliban, we're re-entering the country, re-infiltrating, going into the hinterlands of Afghanistan. I know that sounds redundant, but it's actually true. Um, and re-establishing their presence and growing outside of the purview of either ISAF or the Afghan government. And as a result, they were able to re-inject that cancer and then create a whole new situation in Afghanistan. So it was taking our eyes off the prize in Afghanistan Added to that, we were amb our ambitions to turn Afghanistan, to do nation building in Afghanistan, weren't commensurate with the amount of resources that we were pouring into it because we had opened up another theater of operation. So it was the worst of all worlds. While our enemy was reconstituting, we were looking elsewhere um, instead of keeping focused on Afghanistan and limiting our aims. The key lesson of strategy and policy course and strategy and war course is one of them anyway, is the more narrow you define your ends and your aims, the more likely you are to achieve those. Instead, we created an aim that was so vastly unrealistic to nation build in a nation that never had a nation uh, is the, you know, the, the ultimate uh, example of foolhardiness. Okay, um, Heidi, we'll go to you next on this one. Would you mind just um, putting some uh, uh, parameters on what the question is at, at this moment? Yeah, so um, so Clausewitz says, and, and Corbett, you know, you open a peripheral theater when it is exceptionally rewarding to do so. And uh, ostensibly one could then draw the, the, the link of logic and say, okay, well, therefore you should close a peripheral theater when it is no longer exceptionally rewarding to uh, to be in it. So which one is the peripheral theater here and which one is the main theater? And, you know, because at this point, by 2009, things have gotten really confusing in, in uh, the global war on terror. Yeah, this, this is, um, this is probably one of those philosophical things that, that only comes to you after you've taught the strategy and war course many, many years. Um, but my feeling about this is that you don't talk about theaters when you're talking about political objectives initially. The a theater is a construct of what kind of force or what kind of tool you're using, right? So you don't start with the political objective and say, in this theater, I'm going to do this. The theater is a result of that political objective. So in some ways, by the time you're talking about the exit from Iraq or the, or the return to Afghanistan, what you're talking about is using a military solution for a problem that isn't a military problem. Mm -hmm. And I think I remember many, many officers and uh, people with a lot of experience in policymaking saying kind of exactly that. Mm -hmm. And I think it, in this case, that's, that is the case. Mm -hmm. um, because of the violence, because of the way Iraq uh, disintegrated in a way that we also did not quite expect, I think, um, you know, which stems from another problem, which is that the United States does not understand authoritarian regimes. It understands what they look like from outside, but it doesn't, no one understands exactly what it's like to live in one. Uh, and what that does to people's political decision-making, what it does to uh, the flow of information to what otherwise could become something else. So I think those two things, that this is, the theaters themselves became uh, exceedingly military theaters where other agencies had, if they wanted to play, they had to play basically by military rules or by the coalition rules. And so I think that 
changes that instruments of war issue. It changes the international level, changes how international uh, assets can be applied. And um, it reduces that, that strategy policy match to something else. Mm. Interesting. Barack, thoughts on this one? So, you know, here's what I would say. I think I can answer this question in two ways. One is, which one is the actual peripheral theater? The second way to answer would be, which one should have been the peripheral or just the primary theater? I think the first one is easily answered. The dates may differ, but between 2001 and three, it's Afghanistan. 2003, up until nine, it becomes Iraq. Then after that, it becomes Afghanistan. Again, I'm talking about the primary theater. So I think this is very straightforward. But when it comes to which one should have been the periphery, which one should have been the primary, I totally agree with Mark. I believe Afghanistan should have been the primary and maybe only theater for this operation, if we are talking about global war on terror. We're talking about something else about Iraq, that's something else. But if you're talking about global war on terror, I think Afghanistan should have been the primary, maybe the old, you know, only theater of operations unless something else happened. Uh, but one thing I would say, and I'll just end there, that allows the United States to make those kind of decisions, arguably inefficient decision, if not entire mistakes, is the fact that the United States is so powerful. This is, I think, a dynamic that sometimes goes on. Not the United States, think about 2003, where the United States is you know, carrying out major and costly operations in locations such as Afghanistan and Iraq or Iraq. No other country in the world in 2003, maybe even today, could do that. So I think the immense United States relative power allows the United States a many of options that would not be available to any other country in the world. And that also makes it easier to surrender to optimism, is what I can say. So, so filling in the blanks here on, on, um, what happens in between that. So we decided to do that. We decided to go back to Afghanistan and kind of disengage from Iraq in 2009. Surge in Afghanistan, um, followed by a, uh, a planned troop withdrawal that we announced to the Taliban in the world. Um, and um, then things start to fall apart. In, you know, the Afghanistan situation, I wouldn't say it stabilizes, but um, you know, we'll say it's, uh, uh, we score some more kills on the Taliban, I guess, is about the, the best you can say. But at the same time, Iraq is now falling apart because ISIS is now on the rise. A lot of that has to also do with the Syrian civil war, which I know we probably don't have time to unpack that whole thing. Uh, but Iraq is some fertile uh, breeding grounds for, um, for what becomes ISIS. And then now ISIS takes on this whole new different uh, approach to, um, to radical jihadism and, and the way they conduct it actually tries to take over part of Syria and Iraq, build a state. Um, so, you know, uh, and Barack, we'll, we'll, we'll go right back to you for this one as, the, as our ISIS expert. Um, is, is us disengaging from Iraq in 2009, was this the, the, the trigger that allowed this to happen? Now, I wouldn't say so. I mean, I am a strong proponent of the idea that one of the biggest mistakes that United States decision makers made uh, into, in Iraq was in 2003, the decision to disband Ba'ath Party without any backup plan, like let's get rid of the Ba'ath Party, criminalize them for life and see what happens, what could possibly go wrong. And a lot of things did go wrong 2004 and onwards, especially but arguably 2006, 2007, 2008, the United States pursued some policies, some new models that helped Iraq stabilize itself as of 2009. So I, I'm not sure if United States troops staying there longer would have made a contribution to Iraq's stability. Maybe it would, but I'm not sure if the cost would justify the, you know, the result. But what happens, in, what happens in Iraq from 2009 and onwards is mostly first political and second geopolitical. By political, what I mean is this. Now, we have the surge, but the surge is also backed by another 
supporting plan or strategy or approach, which is the Sahba movement or Sanjavarak, where some Sunni tribes are co-opted by United States and Iraqi government in Baghdad. And then they play a role in helping marginalizing uh, ISIS precursors, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI. And that is, in fact, an impressive feature. But what happens after that is the sons of Iraq, the Sunni tribes, are not treated very well. And their promises made to them by the Iraqi government are not fulfilled. So I think a lot of these tensions happen at the domestic political level between the central Iraqi government dominated by the Shia and the Sunni tribes. So I think if United States did what it did, just disengage from Iraq, but placed more pressure on the Iraqi government so that the Sunni-Shia divide tensions would not explode again, that might have changed it, so, which is why I would say it was not inevitable. And the geopolitical aspects of the processes that lead to ISIS come not only from Iraq, they also come from the Arab Spring and Syria. ISIS was born in Iraq, but arguably ISIS comes out of, becomes online, comes out of, comes into maturity thanks to Syria, the Syrian civil war. So I think, you know, if the United States had stayed in Iraq, would we have Syrian civil war? Probably yes. So I'm not sure if United States' presence in the region holding every other variable constant would have made this, you know, go away. So going back to my answer, I don't think United States leaving Iraq or disengaging Iraq in, in 2009 made ISIS inevitable. There were lots of moving parts. Some of the moving parts United States decision makers could have done something about, by which I mean, as I mentioned, putting more pressure on the central Iraqi government to make sure that Shia-Sunni tensions do not blow up again. But again, there I, I would say, since we can't see the future as we're living in the moment, the United States could do little to foresee that there would be a civil war in you know, Syria in a couple of years, which would eventually have these secondary and tertiary implications paving the way for the rise of ISIS as we know it today. Okay, interesting. Heidi, any uh, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, my thought is that the result of, well, that Iraq and Barack raised this uh, in many of his comments, the reason that leaving Iraq probably was necessary for the United States is that Iraq was exhibiting democratic tendencies. Uh, and when I say that, you know, it sounds like I'm saying something completely nuts, but when we think of democracy, we think of established, peaceful, well-articulated, well-oiled democracy that no longer has all of the uh, childish teenage aspects of democracy. And I don't mean that in a, in a demeaning way, but democracy is messy because what you're doing is you're inviting people who have never had a political role to step back into the political system in a formal way. And that's what Iraq was doing. They were they were uh, forming and and uh, reforming all sorts of different parties that were all in contest with one another. And they were, in fact, along sectarian lines. They were along Baath or non-Baath lines. There were all sorts of uh, permutations of that. And it was resulting in what any democracy has, certainly at the outset, which is plenty of violence. It is not a peaceful process, right? We study that in our own revolutionary war. So the fact that ISIS can take root in that is inevitable because there is a vacuum of power, right? There's a vacuum of power. The state is not under control, uh, nor is it under control in Syria. There's a periphery that where there's a vacuum. And so the, the more that you have a vacuum, the more that you have I think the possibility of yet another group, not a political party, but but an ideological party that seems to get membership and have uh, some sort of organizational principle that works for them, that's when you get groups like ISIS. 
Mm. And, you know, I would say that there are lots of groups like ISIS, but most of them don't succeed. ISIS happened to succeed. And I think it did so under conditions that were essentially political vacuums, which gets back to that whole point about whether this is a war on terror that is more about states or more about non-state uh, actors. And I, I just, I think it's difficult to say. No, that's a great point. Thank you. Mark, go to you for a response on this one. Well, I, I, mean, I agree with everything that Barack and Heidi said. Um, one thing I would say though, is that the United States goes into Iraq with the best case analysis, which is antithetical to good middle, uh, military planning and political planning. So we go in there and we think, again, just like Afghanistan, that we can impose institutions on a country that has none to begin with in terms of democratic institutions, um, which basically means that even though we're able to topple Saddam in a relatively efficient fashion, um, we made Iraq, I'm sorry, Iraq in a relative, we made Iraq safe for Iran. We didn't understand the essential tensions between uh, the Sunnis and the Shia in Iraq, uh, that the Shia, even though they were the majority, had been uh, put down for decades and decades under the Saddam regime, and that when they came to power, eventually, they would want to uh, take revenge on their overlords, uh, which would create an anarchic state in Iraq. And we just never took that into consideration. So you had, like Heidi said, you had a, a, a massive power vacuum in Iraq where instead of taking the Sunnis when we toppled Saddam and trying to have a smooth transition, keeping some of the Sunni military and Sunni political operators in, in place for a while anyway, we created this massive power vacuum uh, that resulted in chaos and anarchy in Iraq that we could not handle very well. Um, and then the second aspect to that um, is the Obama administration following the advice of uh, Senator McCain and McChrystal and, and others uh, with the Sunni awakening, uh, the surge combined with the Sunni awakening changes the very context of, of uh, Iraq in a dramatic fashion and casualties go down, stability seems to be coming to place. And for the second time in a row, we underestimate the difficulty of sustaining stability in a country that we have toppled. Just like we did with Afghanistan, we're gonna do the same thing in Iraq and Obama who runs on a campaign platform of the good wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, the bad wars in Iraq, I'm getting out as soon as I can. And much to his credit, he gets out as soon as he can. But what he does is he creates this vacuum within Iraq that is filled by the most horrific group of the last 75 years, uh, you know, the, the, the ISIS organization. And to make matters even worse, the Obama administration refuses to accept the fact that ISIS is a very difficult group to defeat. And it literally stands by and allows ISIS to take over vast swaths of Iraq without any kind of an adequate response. Uh, so again, what you see is strategic mistake after strategic mistake in the in the global war on terrorism that is just looking back at it is absolutely incredible to understand. And I, I, you know, every administration from the Obama administration, I mean, actually from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, to the Trump administration, every one of those administrations made key strategic errors and blunders and then refused to have the courage to admit their mistake, reassess, and adapt in a, in a timely fashion. Each one of them made the same mistakes, compounding the problem over and over again. Okay, so as we move to the end here, kind of talking about um, a question to close it off and uh, a question that's, um, you know, certainly as, as an Afghan veteran um, was near and dear to my heart was um, the decision to leave Afghanistan. Uh, and, and certainly the way we left Afghanistan was, was another matter, but um, the decision to finally be done to negotiate a complete U.S. withdrawal or, or whatever we want to call it, um, a lot of interesting echoes to the, uh, the Paris Peace uh, Accords with, uh, with Vietnam. Um, 
you know, was this was this the right call to leave Afghanistan and 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 leave it the way we did? And and Mark, uh, we'll we'll go ahead and start this one with you. Never has a decision been so strategically correct and so operationally wrong. Uh, it, it, it was a fiasco. The, the Biden administration, and frankly, I give a share to the Biden administration, but I also give a big share to the military leadership on the ground uh, who refused again to take matters uh, into, their, not into their own hands, but to understand uh, how the Taliban will react and not expect uh, and plan adequately uh, for making sure that the Taliban didn't overrun, particularly Kabul. Uh, there are all kinds of, this is operational art 101, you defend your perimeter, you buck up your perimeter, uh, and then you withdraw an order. And uh, the military on the ground did not do that. Uh, yes, they, the, the Biden administration decided they were going to close the Bagram Air, for, uh, Air Base, but, and they didn't, the military leaders had to speak truth to power, and they didn't do so uh, in a fashion that was effective enough. Uh, and they uh, simply, in many ways, were irresponsible in allowing what happened. There's no reason why the Taliban couldn't have been told directly, stop in your tracks or we'll have a massive bombing campaign. They are, to some degree, concentrating their forces as they take more and more territory. We didn't even use air power adequately, even over the horizon air power, which was we, we still had capabilities for. There's a whole series of major military errors on the withdrawal that much of it is still classified that we will probably take years to find out some of the problems. So the problem is the fault of the Biden administration for uh, tying the military's hand to a, a significant degree and the fault of the military uh, for not doing what they could have with what they had on the ground and in air power. Okay, so I'm glad you said that last part because I, <laughs> I wonder, I wonder how much it was, uh, you know, best military advice says we shouldn't let the Taliban within, you know, certain range of us. But they were maybe, and again, I know we don't know this, but they were told, oh well, we're leaving. You're going to have to figure it out. But we had um, months and months to plan this. It yep. wasn't like this was a surprise. The military had at least a year to plan for this because mm -hmm. the Trump administration before this was saying the same thing that we're getting out. So there's no, you know, no excuse for not having a timetable and enough time to explain and plan for the worst case scenario. They never planned for the worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm. And even CIA uh, in the last months was, was saying, look, the Afghan army might be able to hold, but we don't have a hell of a lot of faith in them. So again, there were enough red flags going up that military leadership on the ground should have been able to devise a plan that was much more coherent. Yeah. Uh, Barack, we'll go to you next for a uh, response on this one. I, I think Mark already covered the execution of the idea in detail, yep. so I don't think I can just, I have much more to say to contribute to that argument, which I agree with. But when it comes to the decision itself, by you know, after almost 20 years, well, after 20 years in Afghanistan, things are not improving. You only have at this point, at that point, I've only had two choices: go bigger or go home. I think, mm -hmm. and going bigger in Afghanistan after 20 years, I don't think was a real option anymore. So I think the only option left, even though even if even if it may not be the most ideal choice, was to go home. So I think. That at that point in time, at 20 years after, 20 years after 2001, 20 years after being in Afghanistan, I think it was the only viable option. It may or may not be the right one in terms of some, you know, criteria or some other, but it was to me short of going much bigger because going slightly bigger was not an option. Staying there like that would not solve anything, but beyond these options, I think leaving Afghanistan was the only viable choice left. Interesting. Thank you. Heidi, we'll give you the last word. Well, um, two points, I think, come to mind. The first one is, uh, and it, you know, right out of your basic statistics course or economics course you take in, in high school or college, garbage in, garbage out. This is, this is the, uh, the crux of it. The strategy uh, and the objective were 
shaky at best just a few years into Afghanistan. And I think for a great many administrations, like Mark pointed out, there is a struggle to define what that is. And so it should be no less true, it should follow logically that then war termination, if this is what that was, also has those uh, problems. Meaning the objective of that war termination, what it is that you want, what it is that you, uh, you know, our sort of famous war termination question, those are not resolved at the end. Um, second point is, is that internationally speaking, uh, by the time we made that exit, the rest of the international system had abandoned Afghanistan as an idea, meaning our allies and all of the ways in which you might mobilize your, your relationships or, or, you know, tap your relationships, those things are dried up. And, you know, that's inexcusable if you are a global player, just because you are a superpower or a, a strong military, as Barack said before, and you can do things does not mean that you, you, uh, you can then just simply negate the importance of that alliance structure or, or coalition structures. And I'm not even talking about military, I'm talking about political assistance, you know, knowing, for example, what the refugee flows might be going into Iran or Pakistan or anywhere. Um, those, are, those are responsibilities of a, of a global power. And we did not have that. And that has nothing to do with the operational execution of, of those people who were on the ground. Um, and then the third thing is that um, the, uh, yeah, I think, I think those two things are sufficient. I think I'll leave it at that. Okay. Interesting comments. You know, this is probably one of those cases we could unpack for another uh, couple of hours here, just uh, sitting around. So uh, um, very much appreciate everyone's insights. I think, uh, I think people who listen to this will, will, will find it, uh, will find it fascinating and it'll definitely generate more discussion. Um, so thank you once again, uh, everyone for, uh, for um, coming on today and being part of this. And we'll see everybody next time on Profiles and Strategy. Thanks, John.